0: Good morning. My name is Stephen and it's my joy to serve uh, as part of the team as the youth pastor here at uh, Oasis Church. I'd like to provide you just with a a really quick update on youth. Uh, We just finished up term one on Friday night. We had a glow party. We had uh, fog machines, lots of glow sticks uh, and some black lights. Uh, And so the kids came dressed in bright colors and they were literally glowing all night, which was a lot of fun. Um, it's been a privilege to connect in with these 50 to 60 youth who come uh, each Friday on a Friday night, uh, as well as to serve alongside such an incredible team uh, of leaders. We're pretty much at capacity, though, with a number of kids who are coming along. uh, And so one of my uh, dreams would be to double the size of our leadership team Uh, We'd love to have people who are uh, willing to come alongside these youth on a Friday night, particularly during school term, uh, just to connect with them, to have conversations with them, uh, and to model for them what life in Jesus really looks like. Uh, And so I'd love to invite you, if you've got time on a Friday night, uh, to come and to join us uh, to connect with these youth. Uh, If you're interested in finding out more, come have a chat to me uh, after the service, uh, or you can also email me uh, at stephen at oasischurch.com.au. If you're joining us, uh, whether in person or online for the first time, or maybe you've been away for a few weeks, we're closing out our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, And today's sermon is going to focus in on a choice that all of us need to make. Uh, And so as we come to our time in God's Word, I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer. Father, I thank you this morning that you have given us your Word. I pray that as we spend this time in it, would you use your Holy Spirit to help us to understand what your son, Jesus, says, uh, and would you help us to apply his words to our lives. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen. Life is full of choices. Some are easy, like, should I have coffee this morning? Others are a little bit more difficult, like, should I apply for that job or should I buy that house? Some choices have little to no consequences, like say for breakfast, should I have wheat bix or Nutrigrain? While other choices could have long, much longer-lasting consequences, for example, driving while under the influence of drugs or alcohol, or even setting aside money into a regular savings account. Sometimes we have so many options to choose from, like on a menu at your Cafe 63. Other times, there can be very few options, like the choice before us today. In coming to the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents his listeners with a choice, and this choice is one that we have before us today as well. Will we choose to obey Jesus or not? Will we choose to not just listen to him, to listen to the words that he says, but will we choose to trust him and follow him? Over the past nine weeks, we've heard Jesus' incredible sermon taught and explained. And I've heard a number of people share how encouraged they've been throughout this series. However, without obedience to the words of Jesus, it will all have been for naught. And so to help us understand why, Jesus takes us through four sets of contrasting pairs in this passage. We see two paths, two trees, two claims, and two houses. If you have your Bible with you uh, or open on your phone, Uh, I'd love for you to keep it open to this passage in Matthew 7 as we work our way through it. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus gives us a series of contrasts. There are two gates that lead to two paths walked by two different lots of people and that end at two very distinct distinctly different destinations. One gate is small and narrow. Through that gate is a narrow path. Neither the gate nor the path are overly obvious and so few find it. However, at the end of this narrow path is eternal life. The other gate is big and it's wide And it opens up onto a path that is broad. And there are many who go down this path. It's hard to miss this gate. But in the end, this leads to destruction. And Jesus is pretty clear in this passage in outlining the implications for each option. He wants those listening to understand that the choice they make will have eternal consequences. They will literally be choosing between life and death. If they want to choose the path that leads to life, then that will require effort. A small narrow gate can so easily be missed, particularly in light of the other gate being so big and so wide. Leon Morris, an Australian New Testament scholar, states that No one just drifts into the narrow way by chance. To find the small gate requires paying attention and intentionally searching for it. It's a bit like looking for a new restaurant to try out. Let's say you go somewhere and there are two restaurants side by side. One is loud and pumping. There's lots of people in that restaurant. Meanwhile, the other restaurant is almost quiet and there's only a few customers. Which one are you more likely to go to? Personally, I'd probably follow the crowd. Usually where the crowd is, there's good food. But sometimes crowds can be deceptive. Maybe the food there is just cheap. Maybe it's served in large quantities. But maybe it's not actually good food. Maybe the restaurant next door has better food. Maybe following the crowd is actually deceptive. And in the case of the two paths, Jesus says that it is. He says that following the crowd on the broad way through the wide gate leads to destruction. But the way to life is less obvious. The way to life takes intentionality. It's a narrow path, and so you need to concentrate on every single step. You can't just wander anywhere you like on this path. Go back and read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in reading that, you'll see there is a particular way of life that is outlined by Jesus, which he wants us to follow. And it's not a particularly easy path. But when choosing which path to take, which gate to enter through, the difficulty should not be the deciding factor. Rather, the destination is what is important. Though the wide gate might be easier to find, the end of that path is eternal destruction. It's more difficult to find the small and narrow gate and to walk the narrow path, but that path leads to life. And it is the only way to life. Now, just because something is difficult, it doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. In fact, most things in life worth doing are often difficult. Things like fostering and maintaining deep relationships, studying for exams or assignments, raising kids, sharing the gospel. These are all worthwhile things, but they can often be difficult to do. Sometimes in life, you are expected to put in great effort without knowing the outcome. But here, Jesus clearly tells us the outcomes of the choice. Enter the narrow gate, walk the narrow path, and that leads to eternal life. Enter the wide gate and follow the broad path along with its crowds, and that leads to eternal destruction. I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 13, Jesus doesn't just present these options and then encourage his followers to take one particular way over the other. He actually commands his followers, enter through the narrow gate. This is a matter of obedience to Jesus. Moving on to what Jesus says next in verse 15, he again issues an instruction to his followers. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. I love the imagery that Jesus uses. In his day, everyone knew that wolves were the natural predator for sheep. There is only ever one intention that a wolf has when it sees a sheep, and that is to eat it. Sheep cannot defend themselves against wolves. And so shepherds would always have to be on the lookout to protect their flocks from any sign of wolves. Who are these wolves? Jesus is referring in this passage to false teachers, false prophets as being wolves dressed up as sheep. This means that though they are wolves, they look like everyone else. They say all the right things and they sound exactly the same. They do all the right things, say all the right things. It's like they're sheep, but in reality, they're still wolves dressed up. And so they have every intention of eating sheep. Therefore, it is critical that Jesus' followers are on guard against such false prophets, lest they be eaten by them. So the big question here then is, how do we know who they are? How are we to tell them apart from the sheep? In Matthew seven sixteen, Jesus says, By their fruit you will recognize them. And in the following verses, Jesus branches out and starts describing Christian teachers as trees that bear fruit. In particular, there are two types of trees. Good trees... And bad trees, and unsurprisingly, good trees bear good fruit while bad trees bear bad fruit. So, this seems obvious, and yet we can so easily be deceived. About 18 months ago, someone shared a video with me, and they told me that I should listen to the video and pay close attention to what is being said. Now, I didn't know the person in the video. So I did what we do these days and jump on Google and I searched for this person. And I was shocked to discover that the person was involved in some fairly questionable activities that had caused significant trauma to a number of families who had lost loved ones. So I wrote back to the person who had sent me this video questioning, why would I want to listen to this person's claims in light of their behavior? And their response to me was that, well, I should listen to them because they're a Christian. I was a little bit stunned. Was I supposed to take what this person said on board simply because they claimed to be a Christian, even though I can clearly see that their actions are anything but godly? Well, what does Jesus say about it? He says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Now, not all false prophets might be as clear-cut as that. The reality is that fruit takes time to grow, and so some false prophets may take longer to reveal their true colors. D.A. Carson, one of the top New Testament scholars today and one of the founders of the Gospel Coalition, writes this. He writes, "'Within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, "'the false prophets can only be someone "'who does not advocate the narrow way "'presented by Jesus. "'He may not be wildly heretical in other areas,' Indeed, he may set himself up as a staunch defender of orthodoxy. There is nothing in their preaching which fosters poverty of spirit, nothing which searches the conscience and makes men cry to God for mercy, nothing which excoriates, that is, criticizes severely all forms of religious hypocrisy. Nothing which prompts such righteousness of conduct and attitude that some persecution is inevitable. It is even possible in some circumstances that everything these false prophets say is true. But because they leave out the difficult bits, they do not tell the whole truth and their total message is false." We might think that because someone knows the Bible back to front, they are an authentic Christian teacher. But look at their lives as well. What if the dominant theme of their interactions with others is not one of mercy or meekness or humility? That should ring a warning bell in our minds. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that these people, these false prophets, are going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Let us hear the words of Jesus and obey them this morning. Let us watch out for false prophets who are dressed as wolves, who are dressed as sheep, but inwardly are wolves. Jesus doesn't want us to be naive about who we listen to, but he wants us to be discerning. Let's not let it get to the point where we've allowed these wolves to pull the wool over our eyes. In the next paragraph of his sermon, Jesus turns our attention to two claims. One claim that leads to genuine acceptance into the kingdom of God, while the other claim leads to rejection. Well, who decides this judgment? And we see in verses 21 to 23 that Jesus is the judge. He says, Not everyone who says to me, or many will say to me, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. Jesus is the one who determines who enters into the kingdom of heaven. Thankfully, it's not just based on some kind of wishy-washy decision, but he actually tells us exactly what is needed to enter into God's kingdom. In verse 21, he says, "'Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven.'" Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, this statement then begs the question, what is the will of the Father? And Jesus goes on to point out, well, it's not flashy ministry that is a sign that someone will enter into the kingdom of heaven. In verse 22, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Lord did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now that seems pretty harsh, right? People have been prophesying performing exorcisms and many other miracles in the name of Jesus, and yet he rejects them. Why would he do that? Well, if we look at the broader context of Scripture, we'll discover that such signs and wonders are not purely the domain of Jesus and his kingdom. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes... The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Later in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 24, Jesus says, At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. To deceive, if possible, even those whose trust is genuinely in Christ. So signs and wonders, even when done in the name of Jesus, do not guarantee entry into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of the Father will enter. To find out what someone's will is, that's to find out what someone wants or desires, you really need to be in relationship with them. You have to know them. Trying to make an assumption of what will please someone else can often land you in hot water. Uh, And I'm sure we can all think of Examples of when that's happened for us. It's in getting to know someone that you begin to understand them. You learn how they operate. You learn what they like from what they don't like. The longer you get to know someone and the more intimately you're acquainted with them, it's likely that you'll start doing things like finishing each other's sentences. You'll begin to anticipate what they want before they've even expressed it. But you can only do that because of how well you know them. And so I want to ask this morning, how well do we truly know God? Do we really know Him or do we just know about Him and then live our lives assuming we know what He wants of us? It's easy to live like that without truly knowing God. I had, I guess, the opportunity to grow up within a Christian family, uh, and I went to church on Sundays, grew up in a Christian school. And when I graduated from high school, I went to university with a 15-year plan for my life of how I was going to serve God. I was going to serve God as a cross-cultural medical missionary. Now, that sounds like a God-glorifying way to live my life, right? The problem with it, though, was that that was how I wanted to serve God. I hadn't actually stopped and asked how God wanted me to serve Him. I simply presumed His will for my life, but as I continued to grow deeper in my relationship with Him, He revealed a very different path. I never dreamt of being a youth pastor, and yet here I am, and there is nothing more that I would rather be doing than this. But if I hadn't grown deeper in my relationship with God, if I hadn't pursued that and known Him more, then the reality is that my life probably would have looked like a life lived in obedience to God, but I could have just been following an assumption that could have ended with the same words that Jesus says here in Matthew. I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doer. That is a scary thought. If you were to come before Jesus right now, if today was judgment day, what would your claim to enter the kingdom of heaven be based on? Would it be based purely on a life doing good, assuming that that is what God's will for your life is? Or would it be based on knowing God and being known by Him, that is, having an intimate relationship with God, with Jesus, that then leads to a life of obedience? Jesus closes out his Sermon on the Mount with one of the most famous Sunday school songs ever. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please go see Emma. She's more than happy to sing it for you and do the actions. But Jesus finishes by comparing two houses. One house representing a life lived in obedience to Jesus' words, and the other house representing a life lived in, In rejection of what Jesus has said, both houses, if you look at them from the outside, they look identical. The only way to tell the difference between them is for a severe storm to come, and then you will see what kind of foundation each house has been built on. What is it that you are building the house of your life upon? Are you building your life on things that don't last? Things that this world might claim are important, but in reality, they're just different ways that all lead to destruction. Or are you building your house upon something that is eternally solid? Is your house able to withstand the storms of life? Already, This year we've seen several examples, very tangible examples of this play out within our church. As Adam shared earlier, one of our deacons, Dirk, passed away this week after having been struck by lightning. I know that this has shaken his family, it's shaken the staff team and many who are close to him. But despite the grief and the uncertainty of the last few weeks... It has been incredibly encouraging to see the steadfastness of, in particular, of Dirk's wife, Hanalei, uh, and their family. Her messages of trust in Jesus and peace in the midst of her suffering have shown that the house of her life has not been built on the loose foundations of sand that this world offers, but it shows the house of her life has been built on the very solid Words of Christ. Another couple in our church who are facing a storm in their lives are David and Selena Fife. Earlier this year, Selena was diagnosed with breast cancer. It was devastating news and required action right away, and yet they've faced each day with a deep, steadfast trust in Jesus. There are others facing storms in their lives as well. And they too are withstanding the forces that are beating against them. How can they do this? It's because their lives are built upon the rock solid words of Jesus. How about you? Having heard these words of Jesus this morning and in weeks gone by, Are you like the wise builder who hears the words of Jesus and puts them into action, building his life on a solid foundation that can withstand the storms that come against it? Or are you like the foolish builder who hears these words of Jesus and does not put them into practice, choosing instead to build your life, choosing instead to build his life on a weak foundation that will only end in ruin? A former pastor of mine used to repeat this phrase over and over again. He would say, We are who we are and we do what we do based on what we know to be true about God. We are who we are and we do what we do based on what we know to be true about God. Who we believe that Jesus is will ultimately determine how we respond to his words. Matthew chapter 7 closes by saying that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The teachers of the law in those days, much like many pastors do today, including myself, would refer to other authorities in their teachings. They would quote their equivalents to Timothy Keller or John Stott or C.S. Lewis. But Jesus does none of that. He speaks as his own authority, which was super rare for teachers to do, and so this made him stand out. If Jesus didn't need to point someone else as being the authority, what kind of authority is this that Jesus has? In Jesus' day, some thought that he was John the Baptist, come back to life. Others thought that he was Elijah, and still others thought he was one of the prophets. Over the centuries, many have questioned Jesus' authority also calling him a prophet or a good moral teacher. But it doesn't matter what other people, who other people say Jesus is. What matters is who you say that Jesus is. Because that will determine how you relate to him. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis writes... I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis goes on to say, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a find, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus' disciple Peter, when asked who he thought Jesus was, declared, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If this is who Jesus truly is, if he truly is the Son of the living God, then the choice before us today is of the greatest importance. And so how will we respond to him this morning? Will we choose to listen to him and to obey him? Or will we choose to listen and then walk out and forget what Jesus said? Will we choose to trust him? Will we choose to follow him through the sufferings of this life and into the joy of the life that is to come? Or would we rather choose the broad and wide gate that leads to destruction? This is the most important choice we could ever make. And it's not a choice that someone else can make for you. So, what Will you choose? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending us Jesus so that we might know you more intimately. Thank you for using him to teach us how we are to live as your people. Thank you for the way that he modelled the life for us to follow, ultimately laying it down on a cross for our salvation as we are faced with this choice of whether to listen and obey or to listen and ignore the words of Jesus, would you empower us by your Spirit to make the wise choice? Would you open our eyes and help us to find the narrow gate and the path that leads to life? Help us to be discerning of those claiming to speak for you. Help us to genuinely know you And may our good works be done in response to the love and grace that we have received from you. Help us to build our lives on the solid foundation of the the words of Jesus so that when life storms break against us, we will be found to be holding firm and that we will endure until you return or you call us home. We thank you for the joy and even the hope that we have now as we wait and look forward to life with you in eternity. Amen.